and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. During the past several weeks, a string of attacks on critical infrastructure in the Baltic Sea has highlighted the challenges NATO faces in protecting itself against hybrid threats. After the discovery of damage to a gas pipeline between Finland and Estonia, news soon broke that a data cable connecting Estonia and Sweden had also been damaged. While investigations point to a Chinese commercial vessel as the most likely culprit, the difficulty of attributing the incident directly to Beijing illustrates a common problem in defending against gray zone aggression more broadly. The observation of a Russian ship nearby, the suspected Chinese vessel, has also raised questions about the nature of cooperation between Moscow and Beijing in the high north. To help us make sense of the recent incident and what they can tell us about the future threat posed by hybrid warfare, we're really pleased to have Bruce Jones and Elizabeth Bra with us on the podcast today. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks for having us. A brief background, our bios. Bruce Jones is a senior fellow with the Strobe Talbot Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. And Elizabeth Bra is a senior associate fellow at the European Leadership Network and columnist with foreign policy. Her work focuses on deterrence against emerging forms of aggression, such as hybrid and gray zone threats. Bruce, let's start with you. Um, I know you've done quite a lot of digging into this most recent um, instance with the Baltic connector pipeline and the communication cable. I wonder if you can just give us the briefing. Um, I think the incident got lost in all of the news that is uh, overwhelming overwhelming us all today. So um, give us your best sense of what transpired. Yeah, and I'll start by saying this is the the murky world of hybrid warfare meets the very murky world of international shipping. So issues like attribution are going to be incredibly hard. What we know is that late in the night or sort of technically early morning on October 8th, so just as the news in in Israel uh, was breaking and and consuming world politics, just as that happened, um, the Finnish authorities noticed a drop in pressure on a gas pipeline that runs from Finland to Estonia, a very important source of energy for Estonia. Uh, and shortly thereafter, it was later discovered there was also damage to this telecommunications cable that uh, runs between Stockholm and Tallinn. The initial investigation highlighted the presence of a rather unique Russian ship. Um, it's a nuclear-powered commercial vessel whose primary job is transporting defense goods up to Russian installations in the high north. But then um, what was uh, further investigation highlighted the presence of what was the, a ship known as the New New Polar Bear, which is, again, a very unique vessel. It's a, a small container ship, um, but uh, ice class, meaning that it sailed across the northern sea route, um, despite the presence of considerable ice, even at this time of year, and the first commercial voyage by the Chinese of that route. They were essentially, we've been able to reconstruct that both ships were more or less sailing together through the Baltics when these two incidents occurred. Uh, the Russians deny any involvement in what happened. The Chinese ship refused to cooperate or be in contact with Finnish and Swedish and Estonian authorities. The Finns were eventually able to detect that a, an anchor 
had damaged the pipeline um, and photographs of the, the Chinese ship when it uh, eventually docked, docked an archangel um, outside of Marmansk showed that it was missing its right anchor. So, and then by the way, just to add another twist, um, since it sailed from Archangel, the Chinese ship has changed ownership uh, and now reports being owned by a Russian company, uh, which was a part owner of the Chinese company um, under which it was sailing at the time of the incidents. Uh, so the, the facts as we know them support a number of hypotheses, unfortunately, which go from sort of bad to worse. Do you want to lay out some of the hypotheses, Bruce? So, I mean, it, it's, I think, I mean, well, just very briefly. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems to me there's the kind of three scenarios. One, it was actually an accident. It's not inconceivable. The ship, you know, lost control of its anchor, uh, damaged the pipeline, dragged the chain, which damaged the, the telecommunications cable. It's within the world of the possible that this was an accident. The fact that they wouldn't communicate the presence of the Russian ship at the same time make that seem, uh, as Sarah Kirschenberger has put it, uh, it gives it a, an implausible deniability. It seems highly unlikely, but you can't entirely rule it out. Second scenario is that this was a Russian hybrid operation and they roped in a Chinese ship without Beijing's knowledge. That seems problematic to me, to the notion that the Russians would do that to the Chinese at this exact moment and their relationship seems unlikely. And the third, that the Chinese were involved in an act of sabotage against NATO critical infrastructure in the Baltics, which is extremely worrying if that's true. Yeah, Elizabeth, just to bring you in and feel free to add anything um, to what Bruce has laid out. But I mean, what's your reaction to the different scenarios that Bruce laid out as someone who, I mean, has deeply studied Russian hybrid tactics in particular. Is there anything surprising about this? Does it comport with your general understanding of how these operations play out? Like wh what, if anything, or, and maybe the answer was there's nothing, um, but what, if anything, was surprising to you, or is this really consistent with how these operations tend to play out? Yes, it, it is consistent with how these operations play out, and what 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 is so um, so convenient and and really attractive about gray zone aggression is that you can you can be incredibly innovative and you can use any means anywhere anytime, and it will be very hard for the targeted country to. Uh, make an attribution to you to your government beyond reasonable doubt, because as we see, uh, is this in this case as with most as in most other cases, most investigating authorities have an idea of what may have happened and and uh, who may uh, be behind it, but they they struggle to prove it beyond reasonable doubt, and that is the 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 standard that we have in our countries that are based on on the rule of law, and so that that is the infuriating and frustrating thing about about gray zone aggression that it's it's so obvious to target the country what's going on, and yet you can't prove it, and so sometimes I think often uh, investigating authorities and the public and politicians feel like they're going insane. They they know what's happening, and yet the other side can say, well, <laughs> you are you are just uh, hallucinating. The one thing I think that is surprising to me is the involvement of the Chinese ship. And, you know, like initially when news broke of this and, you know, watching some of this play out on social media, it, you know, our initial, my initial response was, well, of course it's Russia. 
And then to see the involvement of China, um, is that new and unique, in, at least in this part of the world? Was that at all surprising to you, Elizabeth? Yeah, I mean, there, so there is uh, Chinese uh, merchant vessel traffic in the Baltic Sea, just as, as there is everywhere. Um, and I, I think what's interesting is that China has used civilian shipping quite a bit to, to engage in gray zone aggression in, in different ways. So we can, for example, look at the long distance fishing fleet that it's obviously, you know, very much uh, merchant vessels and they go around the world and, and uh, fish other countries' waters dry. And there isn't very much those countries can do about it. And they don't just fish the waters dry. They they damage the seabed and, and cause incredible damage to, to uh, the marine wildlife in addition to taking the fish. And then you have seen uh, Chinese vessels um, harm and, and most recently... Um, uh, cut off the undersea cables that connect the Mats Islands with Taiwan proper, and and then China can say, "Wow, well, you know, it's just it's just merchant vessels. There's nothing to do with us." And and then uh, now again in the Baltic Sea, and I think it, it's it, it's new for the Baltic Sea, but uh, not new as a as a phenomenon. And once again, the the Chinese government can say, well, it's a merchant vessel. And this time they've actually said they cooperate with the Finnish authorities. Let's see what kind of cooperation uh, they'll uh, they'll offer. It seems like, you know, it's mostly sort of a pro forma thing. And 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 uh, then they can say, well, we cooperated and and we did our part. So Bruce, that was one of my first questions on hearing about the China about China's involvement or the, the involvement of the Chinese ship. Is the extent to which, if at all, Beijing is aware of this? And I know again, I know we can't know for sure, but but what's your sense? I mean, do is I guess I'm getting at to what extent do we think this was coordinated activity or is it just again like happenstance? How are you in one of your hypotheses is, you know, Russian hybrid operation without Beijing's knowledge. How are you thinking about and assessing the extent to which Beijing would have been aware of this? Yeah, so. And again, I do think, you know, on this and <laughs> to Elizabeth's point, this is one of the frustrating things is you do have to keep open the possibility that it was an actor. So let's let's just stipulate that. Um, assuming it's deliberate, then the question of to what extent did China know uh, that this was happening? Now, it is, of course, perfectly possible that the Russians orchestrate this find some shoddy vessel that happens to be, you know, it used to be Cypriot flag, then it was Maltese flag, then it was Hong Kong flag. Now it's, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of vessels like that. China isn't paying attention to all of them. So it's possible that this could just be the Russians. What, what I think makes it less likely that that's the case is that this ship just completed the Shanghai to Kaliningrad route as part of a very deliberate effort by Russia and China together to open up the Northern Sea Route as a commercial uh, as a commercial venture. This is a big deal for China. If they can open up the Northern Sea Route and sail commercial ships through that route, it cuts hugely down the cost of selling goods to European and American markets. And so it's a big deal for them. And there was a lot of fanfare around the fact of this maiden voyage of the Northern Sea Route. Uh, there's no way that that fact happens, that, that that part of it happens without direct involvement in, in Beijing. 
So it's then very odd if that same ship is involved in um, a sabotage operation without any knowledge for Beijing. So if it is, in fact, sabotage, and you know, on, on the face of it, it does seem highly likely, um, then it's hard to imagine that Beijing didn't know. So again, you know, maybe it's an accident and, and we're blowing, you know, we're spinning ourselves up over this. Uh, maybe it's an accident. But <laughs> if it isn't, um, then it seems likely that Beijing, you know, it also seems to me that at this moment in their relationship, when Russia is, you know, isolated from a lot of countries, trying hard to find sources of ammunition and technology supply, China is very discreetly getting a range of kinds of goods in to help them in their war effort in Ukraine. It would be a very strange moment for Russia to execute an operation like this using a Chinese flag vessel without Beijing's knowledge. Um, that's the kind of move that, you know, does serious damage to diplomatic relations. So it'd be very surprising to me if Moscow would do that. I want to just add, even if this is an accident, it still reveals things about the vulnerabilities of our critical undersea infrastructure and the extent to which we're not paying attention. Um, it, again, even if this is an accident, the fact that a nuclear-powered Russian vessel whose primary function is resupply of Russian military positions in the Arctic and a very unusual Chinese cargo vessel are sailing together across the Baltics and nobody's watching or paying attention until this happens, strikes me as revealing of the fact that we have not really understood how vulnerable this infrastructure is and the threats posed by the kind of hybrid uh, operations here. It, it, we're not talking about dozens of ships in Russia that could execute a maneuver like this. Um, it would be relatively straightforward to be tracking the movement of those ships in a, in a body of water like the Baltic Sea, um, and, and yet we weren't. And, and so it does, even if it's an accident, it's, it still reveals our lack of preparedness. And if it's anything more than an accident, it acutely reveals uh, how little attention we're paying to some of these acute vulnerabilities. Elizabeth, did you want to jump in? Yes, uh, yeah. So. Um... It is. I, I completely agree with Bruce. Uh, on on this occasion, um, uh, the the authorities have obviously already said that there was uh, man-made damage, and we just don't know whether it was uh, so damage that the captain of of whatever the vessel was, whether it was New New Polar Bear or another vessel, so thought up that he would uh, that he would cause just <laughs> for the fun of it, or whether uh, the vessel was acting in in. Uh, in coordination with uh, the Russian state or the Chinese state, and that's that's the, the challenging thing to find out now. And then the other challenge is, even if you see uh, commercial vessels behaving oddly, uh, they have the right to to sail both through through uh, economic uh, or EEZs or EEZs and and territorial waters um, under under the uh, UN uh, UNCLOS, so the United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea. So uh, it's it's very you you yeah, it's it's very difficult. Even if you suspect they may may be up to something, you you can't prevent them from from going there. And that's why uh, these suggestions are coming up of you know, we should we should close the Baltic Sea to Russian and Chinese ships. Well, that would be a very violation of international law, and and obviously be viewed by these countries as a as a, a very hostile act. I think that's right. But but one thing I will add is that. You know, when I, I think specifically about the Russians, a little harder with the Chinese, but in this water, we're going to be primarily worried about the Russians. Um, 
you know, a a commercial vessel carrying 15,000 TEU owned by one of the major international shipping firms, even if there's Russian ownership of Russian goods, that is not going to pose a threat. A nuclear-powered Russian cargo ship, which has dual-use functions, surely is a ship we should be keeping our eye on. And these ships, you know, they do transpond with their IIS transponders, the automated information system. They do keep those on as you're sailing. They may spoof it when they're engaged in something, but they do keep them on. We're not talking about a huge number of ships. It would be relatively easy, I think, to put together a list of ships that we'd want to keep a close eye on. It might be a couple of dozen. It might be 200. Uh, it wouldn't be hard to track their movements. And when we see them approaching critical infrastructure, or we see an unusual pattern, we can deploy drones, we can deploy UUVs, we can deploy Coast Guard and monitor them more carefully. Because even if we couldn't stop them from doing damage, if we have real-time observation of their movements, it's much, much easier to develop attribution. Like if we compare what's happening right now in the Philippines, where the Chinese are harassing the Philippines as they attempt to resupply, the Philippines are putting this live on video in real time. The Chinese can't possibly uh, you know, argue that they're not doing the things they're doing. We can see it live. We don't have that in a lot of these cases, but to the extent that we can identify likely vectors of, of threat or risk and sort of crowd in observation, uh, would be able to improve our, our our prospects for attribution. And early, almost real-time attribution really is the key to puncturing the, the kind of cloak of confusion around hybrid warfare. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for all that you all have said. I, I agree with the, the points uh, made, particularly about not paying attention. I guess bandwidth is at, a, is at a premium now, given all that's going on. But let me let me just ask a quick question. Um, these, these two ships came through the Northern Sea Route, and they're built for Arctic travel, and they were built, the British, uh, the um, uh, Russian one particularly, to... Uh, to resupply uh, Russian military uh, activities there up in the Arctic. So it's got, they've got an Arctic orientation, but they're also, Bruce, I think you said that they were also demonstrating, again, the Northern Sea Route and the ability to use that. And that was a big deal of uh, China and Russia showing that, that they could use that route. What were they doing in the Baltic Sea to begin with? I mean, I would think that, um, you know, if they were resupplying Kaliningrad, uh, you know, okay, but but I thought these ships really did that up in the Arctic. You would think that uh, that that given they were coming off off of the Northern Sea Route and they were trying to demonstrate the economic viability of that, they would have pulled into Antwerp or something like that. Instead of instead of going through that uh, that route and then through the Danish Straits and into the Baltic Sea, uh, I don't know. That just seems like an uh, an odd place for those two ships to be, or an odd mission for them to have given their makeup and, and given, uh, uh, you know, I mean, Kaliningrad, I wouldn't, I would think they would resupply Kaliningrad by rail, you know, which goes through Lithuania, but I don't know. It just seems like a strange place for those two ships to be. Secondly, was there any, uh, any kind of uh, parallel between uh, the Nord Stream 2 explosion and this? I know one was an explosion and one was not, but was it, were there some other things that that look suspicious in terms of uh, the types of ships seen in the area for on, in both those instances? Uh, was there any kind of uh, link there, or were, were those two pretty different uh, activities uh, without any kind of of uh, overlap between the two? 
Well, maybe I'll comment on the first, and I suspect Elizabeth knows more about the second. You know, it doesn't strike me as that surprising that they would have gone to St. Petersburg. Um, uh, first of all, from a market perspective, you're not selling stuff to Kaliningrad, right? You're stopping down there en route into the European market. So it's true they could have stopped in Amsterdam or, or, or someplace else, but uh, given the nature of the joint Russian-Chinese effort here, it doesn't strike me as all that surprising that they go on to St. Petersburg. So that part in and of itself, I don't think is suspicious or, or revealing. Um, there have been reports that the Chinese are using vessels like this to supply the Russians with stuff that they're not acknowledging, but we have no way of knowing whether that's what this ship was up to. I mean, that stuff is extremely opaque. I, d I didn't know they went to St. Petersburg. I thought they just went to Kaliningrad. Yeah, no, they went to, they docked in St. Petersburg briefly and then and then sailed back out. And uh, I'll, I'll come in here too. Uh, it was sort of a, a marquee journey. So this was a, a, a round yeah. trip uh, twice uh, along the Northern Sea Route to essentially prove, uh, it was a proof of, proof of concept that a container vessel can, can conduct this journey uh, once from one side to the other and then back. So uh, New New Polar Bear had, had uh, pioneered this route for uh, the, the this type of vessel, so contained regular box ship, and and then it it seems like she would just happen to be around there in the Baltic Sea to to do a little bit uh, more while she was already there in the well in the Saint Petersburg Kaliningrad area, and then Jim also regarding going to to Antwerp as as I think. Uh, is is uh, obvious now Russia essentially is, is cut off from a lot of international uh trade so it, it so Russian um Russian linked ships uh I think would they they would rarely go to to western ports uh, to deliver deliver goods and then uh, obviously yeah. China is a, is a very major trading partner of Russia so sort of big helper uh, now that Russia is so isolated, so it seems from that point of view to be uh, a, a totally reasonable journey for for her to make. Uh, but also, as I said, proof of concept. Right. The only other thing I'd add that I, you know, I just find the whole thing sort of bizarre and murky. So the other thing that's odd is when you take a close look at the new new polar bear and, and sort of no insult to her builders in Hamburg, you know, whenever it was built in the 90s, but it's a crappy ship. Um, and, and it's all rusted, and there's lots of sort of problems everywhere. Sailing out of, of, of um, Archangel on its return voyage, it had containers listing off to one side. It just seems extremely odd. If you're going to do this thing of your China and your Russia, and you're opening up the new sea route with all the fanfare that accompanied it, when you put a good ship uh, on that route, I mean, it's, it's just bizarre. Um, and it's really hard to puzzle that one through. Um, but but the fact of St. Petersburg is is in those terms not surprising. The, on the same um, on the Gazprom, I think these were different kinds of attacks and different kinds of if it was an attack and different kinds of ships, but with one critical common feature, which is the extreme difficulty of doing any kind of real time attribution on underwater infrastructure. And when you look at the uh, the route that both of these ships take, you're not only looking at um, gas infrastructure, energy infrastructure, and data infrastructure in the Baltic Sea. They sail across the North Sea, where you've got energy pipelines that are of extraordinary importance to the European market now that they've weaned themselves off of, of Gazprom. 
by the time they were observed sailing together up there, uh, you know, people had been alerted and the Norwegian Navy had sailed out and sort of shadowing them, making sure they weren't stopping and doing nefarious things to those to those vital gas pipelines. Um, but the, the undersea piece of this is extremely important and extremely hard. And there are some technologies that could be implemented now to improve monitoring, but it's going to take a, a lot of refocus. And, and remembering that oftentimes these are civilian pieces of infrastructure. These are not military infrastructure. They're civilian. They're commercially owned. Um, and, and we're just not yet in the mindset, really, of understanding how vulnerable these are and the extent to which the, the Russians in particular in Europe, Chinese and other waters really do pose a threat to this. And it's gonna take a much more substantial, it's not just a NATO response, we're gonna need sort of whole of society responses to protect this infrastructure on which we fundamentally depend. Every aspect of our society depends fundamentally on things that flow across the seabeds and they're incredibly vulnerable. That's Bruce, that's exactly where I wanted to go. I want, um, if you and Elizabeth can give us a sense of like the scope and the magnitude and the stakes of the challenge. And, you know, I think Bruce, I've heard you talk about the infrastructure around Ireland and the UK. I mean, what they're obviously, it's not just up in the Baltic Sea, it's a broader and even larger issue. So talk a little bit about what else, what, you know, is there other low hanging fruit that the Russians and or Chinese could be eyeing um, and, and how disruptive and consequential would those types of attacks be? I can start on on that one. So yeah, it, it the, the problem is that no government in in the Western world in in a liberal democracy is big enough to be everywhere all the time, and 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 yet in order to uh, to spot every potential uh, act of harm, the government would have to be everywhere all the time. So this is the challenge we face. But I, I think it's it's not uh, it's not it's not completely hopeless because it's in everybody's interest that that we minimize the attacks or at least the harm that the attacks might might cause uh, to to our infrastructure. And we should remember also that sea based infrastructure is expanding because it's, it's not just undersea cables and pipelines, but of course, a lot of wind farms as well. And we need those wind farms if we're going to make the, the energy transition. And, and without the energy transition, there's obviously no hope for this planet. So there will be a lot more sea-based infrastructure. Um, but I think the key is to, to uh, essentially ask everybody to, to keep an eye on what's going on. And, and I think you know, it's not like we have to go and, and sort of uh, constantly surveil uh, infrastructure, but it's uh, there is this uh, UK... Um, public awareness campaign that's been going on for decades, see it, say it, sorted about terrorism. And and it's a little bit, you know, old fashioned now because people are tired of it because they've heard it so much. But I think that works for other parts of society as well, or other countries as well. If you see something that doesn't look right, I mean, we see that that in, in you know, in public transport in lots of places it, for, for terrorism, but the same goes for, for grazing and aggression. If you see something that doesn't look right, just let somebody know. And a good example of that is when and um, the youth 137 ran aground uh, off the coast of Sweden in, in 1981 
uh, obviously ran aground and and it was spotted not by the Swedish Navy there in the middle of the night, but by two fishermen who were out early in the morning and and they said, oh, something doesn't look right. <laughs> and one of the, they they then made their way back to to a port and and called the Navy and. Uh, so that's how the Navy found out there was something going on. And you say, well, it's terrible that the tape that the Navy wasn't out in that spot, uh, you know, in the middle of the night. Well, on the other hand, it's really good that there were fishermen who knew what to do in that situation. And I think uh, governments, Western governments, can foster that sort of awareness among the general public, fishermen. Um, the shipping community, even ordinary people and the Swedish Navy actually started two years ago, a, a lovely or, you know, pioneering, I shouldn't say lovely because there's nothing lovely about this, but pioneering sort of public awareness campaign along the same lines. If you see something that doesn't look like right, let us know. And chances are that there will be some good finds among all the, you know, other, other sort of uh, unhelpful suggestions that, that may come in. Yeah, and just to go to the question of the stakes here, uh, something in the order of 95% of all data in the world flows on undersea cables. And that's not just, oh, I want to be able to watch my Netflix. That's all global financial transactions. The entire global economy flows through those cables. Um, if there were serious disruptions, it would be of a huge consequence. Now, that being said, it's not so easy uh, to to attack um, fiber optic cables that connect the financial centers at scale. You could snip one or you could damage a couple. To do enough damage to really disrupt global financial flows would take a very sophisticated actor engaged in a very sophisticated attack. Um, but there are points of vulnerability, um, and we've just seen it. If you look at a map of the energy cables connecting Europe to flows from the south and flows to the north, in both cases, relatively shallow water is pretty easy to damage. If you think about the damage, it could be very easily done by hybrid operations to ports. Um, I've just been spending some time talking to people about the security in the port of Houston, 55 mile long corridor that would be unbelievably easy to disrupt with UUVs or, or hybrid operations of variety of types but which is essential to the supply of oil to the American economy or to a, you know, to a U.S. Navy operation in the Pacific. So there, there are amazing vulnerabilities here. Uh, and relative to how important this infrastructure is, we, we have not done nearly enough investment in, because we just haven't thought about it in this way, right? It was part of a kind of global, cooperative, geoeconomic, positive-some world. We just don't live in that world, and we, aren't, we haven't yet made that uh, mental shift. And I think I, I, I liked Elizabeth's point about sort of involving lots of folks, but I do also think it's going to require substantial upgrades in our Coast Guards and Coast Guard cooperation. Uh, you know, the places where this stuff is most vulnerable is relatively close to shore where you can damage it with something like an anchor off a commercial vessel. Unlike, you know, to, to tap a pipeline or to hack a cable on the seabed in the middle of Atlantic takes a very sophisticated submarine. So we're talking about a handful of of actors, but close to the shoreline, there's a lot more risk uh, and, a, a, and a lot more investment in Coast Guard and Coast Guard coordination is going to be necessary here. And I'll just add that it's uh, obviously we're talking about uh, about sea-based infrastructure now, but, but uh, if we look at um, colonial pipeline two years ago uh, when uh, hackers managed to obviously uh, 
attack and and cripple colonial pipeline which then had to shut down um it the, so that was bad enough and 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 obviously there's there's more society can do to, to try to to prevent that from happening but what made it far worse what was the reaction of the public that people thought oh there has been there has been a hack on, on colonial pipeline i'd better fill up on, on gas and then they all <laughs> did and 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 uh there was no gasoline to be had on the east coast so that is another role the public can play uh, to learn not to panic because panic actually makes whatever the gray zone incident is far worse. You know, it's interesting. Your This discussion points out another vulnerability to all of this. I mean, Bruce, you were talking about, you know, Coast Guards needing to up their game to be able to monitor and maritime surveillance has always been a big thing for NATO. But, but uh, as you both have said, uh, a lot of these pipelines Lines. They're not military. These are commercial pipelines, private sector pipelines between countries. These are businesses. So is so when something like this happens, is it a NATO thing or is it an EU thing or is it a national thing? Uh, you know, um, I, I was was watching to see what would happen if there if uh, with Finland, if Finland uh, went to NATO and said, you know, we've we've been attacked. Um you know, it's it's uh, it's that's not quite uh, what an Article Five kind of looks like. Nine <laughs> Eleven, but I mean, it's but right. this gets one of these things where, well, whose responsibility is it to monitor this? Is it the Coast Guards? Uh, if that's it, like in the U.S., it's not the Pentagon. It's not NATO. Uh, uh, in other countries, it might be part of their military forces, but. Um, I think the EU uh, and the French particularly would have something to say about this. And some nations would say, uh, no, thanks, NATO. This is we got this. We've got our NATO thing or the EU saying, uh, you know, this is part of, uh, you know, your, your businesses and this is something we're going to do. So so I, uh, I think at some point this is going to be tested uh, to figure out who's really. Uh, who needs to respond to this um, provocation and and who needs to make sure that these things don't happen? I think there is a role for the navies, but uh, and for NATO too. It's some, but but I think we have to sort that out. Yeah. So if I look at the world we have already entered into, um, it seems to be highly likely that the next phase of acute tensions with the Russians are going to involve. Russian naval activity and especially subsea activity, right? It's the one remaining piece of their military infrastructure where they can deploy assets that are near pure to those of, of NATO and the United States. Nothing else that they can do. And that, I mean, I'm seeing, you know, short of nuclear war. Uh, if we look at the China question, these are the maritime space is going to be hugely consequential and hugely contested. Um, and we've got these divisions between. You know, the Coast Guard, which is split between DHS and its domestic and et cetera. And then the Navy doesn't know if, you know, port security in continental United States is in a Navy problem. It, dozens of different agencies. Nobody. It's just a mess. And, and we're going to have to have a comprehensive approach to maritime security uh, right. if we're going to protect our interests in this contested ways. And that's just the U.S., Right. So then if you do it in an area like the Baltic Sea, as you say, it's civilian, it's commercial, it's it's a mess. But the vulnerabilities here are rather extreme. Um, and both Russia and China have significant capacity for disruption in this space. Uh, so we're going to have to get our act together. Right. Absolutely. 
One of the things you, I mean, certainly thinking about implications of the war in Ukraine, the more degraded Russia is in terms of its conventional military, the more it's going to have to double down on these asymmetric tactics. And so the sabotage and these types of hybrid attacks, I think, are only going to grow more likely, Bruce, as you said. But Elizabeth, I mean, just maybe just to give you the last word, you know, how how are how maybe any thoughts that you have um, in terms of what Jim said about where responsibility lies and and where the call to action is going to have to come from? This is uh, really the, the the crucial point because there it's not clear uh, which part of the government should be responsible, uh, and and it's certainly not the the Ministry of Defense or Department of, of Defense, because their, their expertise is military force. And, and you can't use military force against gray zone aggression, uh, not just because it's, uh, it's a mismatch, but also because then you are uh, you are escalating very significantly. And, and it, it, it would not be worth responding to gray zone aggression uh, with military, military force for that reason, because you, you may have a war uh, uh, as a result. Um, but which government department is it? We don't know. Some countries are better than others uh, at, at trying to think creatively. Uh, so, for example, uh, the Czech Ministry of Defense has uh, has a, a scheme where they they war game gray zone scenarios with the private sector. That's a really good idea. It's obviously not not a complete solution. Uh, Sweden has total defense exercises. Well, it used to have total defense exercises during the Cold War, and recently they resurrected them to to essentially include all parts of society. That though is not a, a complete answer either because they they still focus on kinetic threats. Uh, but I think that the the key point that that uh, where we can make a major difference is that it shouldn't be just the government. It should be the government in cooperation with the private sector and, and wider civil society. Um, and I, I call me uh, Pollyanna-ish, but I think there is enormous potential there because uh, we've all seen what damage gray zone aggression and 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 other calamities is, you know, uh, uh, weather disasters, what sort of uh, what sort of damage they can they can create. So it's it's really in everybody's interest to be part of trying to minimize the damage so that we don't have to be miserable and 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 live with with uh, uh, infrastructure disruption that that uh, that leaves us without uh, without necessities for a long period of time. So I, I think uh, there is an opportunity here to to uh, do public awareness campaigns. Uh, and something I thought about is, how about we do uh, municipalities or city councils could do sort of an hour every now and then where power goes out or water goes out to just to, just to train people in, in what it's like when, when there is disruption to, to critical national infrastructure. Structure. And, and there should also be some sort of uh, uh, a board or a forum through which, uh, within which companies and government, the government can communicate sort of risk uh, insights with one another so that uh, both sides are, are as informed as possible. So, for example, in a case like, like uh, these three incidents in the Baltic Sea, maybe uh, the, the three operators, so the operators of the two undersea cables and of the pipeline, maybe they had insights, uh, maybe they thought that something looked strange before the, the, the incidents happened. It would be great if, if there were uh, forums in different countries within which 
uh, private companies could communicate such insights to the government. Yeah, I mean, certainly those are excellent insights in terms of figuring out what to do about it. But um, I think we're at time, but I really want to take the opportunity to thank both of you. I do think this is an incident that did get buried under all of the the onslaught of all of the news. And it shines such an important light on a big challenge that I think we're going to increasingly have to address, um, both from Russia and China, as well as the potential for them to be collaborating on these types of issues. So um, Bruce and Elizabeth, thanks so much for getting us up to speed and and helping us understand what happened and and some ideas for how how we can address it moving forward. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having us on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.